0: Well, good morning. I, uh, I hope you have been encouraged um, this morning as, as I have been. I, as I was singing that last song we sang, um, I just encourage you to go back and look at that. Um, spend some time thinking through those words. There's times where we sing songs over and over, and even as we practice, we are. We mention how we didn't notice this word before. This stood out to us as we sing because of what we're going through, I suppose. But just in singing that last song, Relentless Love, speaking of the Lord's goodness, and this has, not, this, this has nothing to do with the text we're going into today, but just of His goodness, in He pursued us though we would hide. His love was unreturned, yet undeterred by pride. And He holds us with a hold that will not let us go. And then, uh, listen to this. Held by His love for me, a hold which sets me free. It sounds contrary. A hold, a grasp, a clinging to that frees you. But yet it is the love of God that holds us, that has grabbed us and transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of His Son, and holds us and secures us, that frees us. Um, And so just dwell upon those words, and rest in, um, if you are in Christ, rest in His relentless love for you. A love that will not be deterred and will not fail. Um, When I think of His love, I think of, there's a quote from A.W. Pink, And it says, I know God's love for me will never end because it never began. And if you're like me initially, you think, I knew it. He didn't love me. But that's not Pink's point. He has loved us from eternity past. From all eternity, He has loved those who are His, and He will not cease to love those who are His. I'm resting that, dear saint. If you have a copy of Scripture, go to Matthew chapter 19. We continue our study in Matthew. Um, 19, not being part of a same sermon. There's, there's certain chapter breaks where it's, you know, you got 5, 6, and 7 where it's one homily from Jesus and we break it up by chapters. While Matthew 19 is not, um, it begins with, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away. So it's not the same sermon, it's not this, even the same place as Matthew 18. But Matthew 19 is behind Matthew 18 because it's flowing out of the same. There's a book in in here dealing with the children and the humility as we're going to see today. So while it is not part of the same teaching of Jesus, it it is tied into the same context of what Matthew, the Spirit through Matthew, is seeking to teach us. I'm going to read the entire chapter of Matthew 19 because we're going to look at the entire chapter today. And then we will, we will look at the text together. Hear the word of the Lord. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, He went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed Him, and He healed them there. And the Pharisees came up to Him and tested Him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said that therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to him, Because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case with a man and his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them. For to such belong the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, All of these I have kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, You who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses and brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me as we begin this morning? Father in heaven, we are thankful for your word. You've been gracious and good to breathe it out to us. We know that every word of you is true. Father, I pray that today you would give grace um, for me to speak it. You would give grace for us to hear it. Um, That we would be those marked by humility and repentance, and a love for you above all things. It's in Christ we pray these things. Amen. Again, looking back to last week in Matthew 18, because that's kind of setting the the tone for where we're going in Matthew 19. Um, Jesus um, is asked the question, who's the greatest? He brings a child to him. Again, Pastor Jimmy pointing to us, He's not speaking of children inherently being a part of the kingdom. He's looking at a childlike mentality of humility, dependence. looking at this humility among them. And then Matthew 18 ends with, for brother sins against you, in our humility we go and we seek reconciliation and we give reconciliation. And then Jesus ends that teaching with the parable of a hard-heartedness of not a humility, of one who had been forgiven and yet did not forgive. In the hardness of his heart, he would not forgive far less than he had been forgiven. Jesus ends that section with, So your heavenly Father will also do to every one of you, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So Jesus is dealing with not outward manifestations of forgiveness, not forgiveness. He's dealing with the heart issue of the hardness of heart that would lead to a non-forgiveness or a non-reconciliation even though one had been forgiven. Which is why I'll tie Matthew 19 in with Matthew 18, because one of the book ends with the children, the context. And two, because Jesus is dealing with the hardness of heart that juxtaposes the humility that should mark those who are in the kingdom. And Matthew 19, in his teaching on divorce and his teaching of the rich young man, deals with the hardness of heart and other issues. Now, I want to say going into Matthew 19, um, I understand the nature of what we're going to get at today. Um, while I think the main context of Matthew 19 is dealing with the hardness of heart coming out of 18, um, Jesus reveals that hardness of heart through certain teachings. Um, today, we're, we're going to have to deal with the issue of divorce and remarriage because Jesus deals with it in the teaching of the text. Um, I want to say going into this, um, the sensitive nature and the emotional nature of this topic is not lost on me. Um, the reality that much, many of us, if not all of us in this room, if not by firsthand experience, by a very close association with someone else, has been impacted by the reality of divorce and remarriage. My my goal today is not to um, heap what the scripture does not heap. My my goal today is to let Jesus say what Jesus said. Um, and so, just know there is my intention is of humility in this, and I only give that disclaimer because I, again, I know of of the sensitive nature and the personal nature of this this topic more so than some others. So, coming out of this, they they. Coming out of Jesus' teaching in 18, they have gone away. Jesus has healed the crowds. And in verse 3, it says that the Pharisees come to Him and they tested Him. And they tested Him by asking Him, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife? Now, it doesn't say how they were seeking to test Him. Um, Commentators and historians will look back to, there were two um, rabbinical schools of thought on divorce and remarriage at that time. Um, one allowing it for any reason, one only allowing it for infidelity. Um, There's there's idea that maybe they were testing him because of his teaching already in Matthew chapter 5 because Jesus isn't going to say anything here. He had not already said there. So maybe we can catch him or maybe they were testing him because they knew what he was going to say and they wanted to bring up the answer they already had in their back pocket to try to make everyone there think he was against Moses and against the Scripture and prove him to not be who he was claiming to be. We don't know why they were seeking to test him, but what we do see clearly here is that their intention was not because they actually wanted to know the answer to the question. Their intention was not to learn. Their intention was not, um, Jesus, we know you are sent from God and we've wrestled with this and we want to be obedient, so show us the answer to this question. Their, their intention was not to learn. Their intention was to test and to trap. But they asked him the question, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Can a man leave his wife? And it, it, the, the context here is limited to a man leaving his wife because in that context, in a Jewish context, a woman would not have been allowed to divorce her husband. right? But let's be clear, um, as the old saying goes, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. He's speaking to, to both here, but contextually, the idea of a wife divorcing her husband wouldn't have been something they would have even considered. But as we see what he teaches about a, a man leaving his wife, or a husband leaving his wife, um, we can likewise turn around and, and put to a wife leaving her husband. So he asks the question, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Can, can we end the marriage and divorce for any reason? Or is it, is it more strict than that? Again, tied into today's no-fault divorce. For our culture has promoted and taught and legalized and made easy the dissolving of a marriage for any or no reason whatsoever. Um, And so they're asking him, is this lawful? Not lawful according to Romans, lawful according to the law of God. Does God permit this? And Jesus um, doesn't even go back into, well, there's trains of thought here and there's this. Jesus goes all the way back to the beginning. And Jesus is doing that because His answer to this is not looking at a contextual, cultural thing. His answer to this is, let's go back and be reminded of what marriage was from the beginning. What did God, who made this, create this to be? So look at what Jesus says in His answer to them. Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And Jesus goes back to the very beginning. Genesis 2. Adam and Eve. God has made man. It was not good for man to be alone. He created woman from man and gives her to the man. This is at last bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And God, in that context, Jesus quoting from Genesis 2, says, Therefore man shall leave his father and his mother. And Jesus is showing in this the original creation intent of marriage. A man and a woman are to come together. A man is to leave his father and mother for, not to forsake in, in a I'll have nothing to do with you way, but forsake in a my ultimate familial relationship is no longer with you. And cling to, or stick to, or unite to, or is translated here in Matthew 19, hold fast to his wife. And the two become one flesh. There's no longer two, there's one. I'm not going to explain what that means, we know. But there's a, a, a union in a marriage that Jesus is showing that was created from the beginning to be one man and one woman joined together by God in a one flesh union that is more intimate than any other union in, in relationship that we know that is not to be separated. Right? Jesus, going into this, is teaching... One man, one woman, in a one flesh union. As the old vows go, for as long as we both shall live. Jesus emphasizes this in saying what we hear a lot at weddings. If I officiate a wedding, this is how I end it. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Understand what Jesus is teaching even in that statement. We often think of marriage, and marriage has become this um, us-centered, us-made thing. But Jesus said what God has joined together, marriage is a union God has made. What God has joined together, let not man separate or put asunder, if you're familiar with the older language. Jesus is showing and and holding up the honor and the dignity and the value and the gift and the original intent of marriage. Marriage is to be seen as the gift and the work of God that it is. It is to be treasured. It is to be upheld. And yet today in our culture, and, and even by their question, it's clear it's not new to our culture. But we see marriage as anything but that. We see more and more this growing trend of marriage being delayed where the average marrying age of men and women becomes older and older and older. Marriage is seen as something to put off until I get further in life. It's to be avoided at all costs. It's to be put away as not to be a hindrance to our goals and our careers and our things. And then when it is joined into, it is shown to be by our culture, something that can be cast aside at a moment's notice. But Jesus is showing in this text marriage is anything but that. It is a good gift from God. It is to be one man and one woman joined together for life. Now, I don't, I don't want to turn this into this, but we also in our culture can't make this text, um, hit this text to not make reference to it. We live in a culture that not only is trying to make marriage be something that is not valued and not to be desired and rested in and committed to between a man and a woman, we live in a culture where um, marriage is to be between whomever would like to be for whatever reason they would like to be for however long they would like to be. But Jesus makes clear marriage is a man and a woman. But let us not get so caught up in that current fight that we lose sight of the fight that I would argue we lost years ago. The the fight for marriage is not just is it a man and a woman. But the fight for marriage is it's a man and a woman who are joined together as one flesh, not to be separated. And the Pharisees seemed to understand exactly what he was getting at here because their response was, well, then why did Moses give a certificate of divorce? They seemed to understand exactly what Jesus was saying. They heard Jesus. You know how God made it. What God has put together, let not man separate. So their response is, why did Moses command us, notice their language, why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce to his wife and send her away? They're referring back to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Where in that case, Moses gave the certificate of divorce if if the wife no longer um, found favor in the eyes of her husband. He could give her the certificate of divorce, she could go away. So they're saying, why did Moses do that if what you're saying about marriage is true? Look at Jesus' response in verse 8. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. So they're saying, why did Moses command us to give the certificate of divorce? I want us I to notice the difference in the language that they use. They're saying, why did Moses command us? And Jesus' response is, Moses allowed you. Divorce was not a command. Divorce was an allowance. And it was allowed because of the hardness of heart. It was not intended to be so. From the beginning, it was not intended to be so. It was not meant to be so. God did not design it to be so. But in the hardness of your heart, God made provision um, in order to protect the woman, in order to protect the society, because He knew in the hardness of the heart what would be. So Jesus is pointing them back. Moses didn't command it. Moses allowed it, and He allowed it, and God allowed it through Moses because of the hardness of your heart. Not because it was part of the original design. Which again is tying back to what we've seen in Matthew 18 with this hardness of the heart to unforgive. And now we see in this hardness of the heart divorce coming into play. And then Jesus clarifies even more in verse 9. But I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. Same statement he made in chapter 5, verse 31 and 32. And in Mark and in Luke, when Jesus says this, um, he does not give the exception clause. He simply says that if a man divorces his wife, he he commits adultery and he causes her to commit adultery. He doesn't give the exception clause. But in Matthew, he does. And there's two views on this idea. There's more than two, but two that I would argue are, are within the bounds of the text. Of what Jesus is getting at here. And I'm, I'm going to point these out just so we can, just so there can be clarity in, in what is the option here. The first view is that Jesus is giving the exception that for a man and a woman who have consummated their marriage, if there is sexual morality, then divorce and remarriage is allowed. Um, common view held among um, the church today. A second view is that um, the, the, the pointing of the language here would point to a betrothal stage where a man and a wife in that culture, though had not consummated the marriage, were legally married. They were betrothed to one another in a legal way that bound them together. And that if infidelity had been discovered to have happened before that stage or during that stage, then a man could divorce his wife. Though they had not consummated, he could divorce her um, But then because of the language here, once the consummation had happened, that would not have been an option. Um, That pointing to, because again, the word here is pornea for sexual morality. It's not the word for adultery. Um, Jesus wanted to use that word. He would have used that word because he used it in verse 9. We see this in Deuteronomy 22. We even see it with Joseph and Mary. If you remember, Joseph and Mary were betrothed. She comes up with child. Joseph's first thought is what every man's first thought would be. Um, I don't know whose it is, but it ain't mine. And what does it say? He sought to divorce her quietly. right? And So it would have been pointing to something of that nature. Both of these, I would argue, are um, seen biblically. Um, and I would hold, there are, there are good theologians and good men, I trust, who hold to both. But in, in the text, these would be the only two options that would be there. At most, Jesus is saying, if a man and a woman have joined together in one flesh, the only thing that will separate that and allow for remarriage would be um, sexual morality among one of the spouses. And then the other spouse would be able to be remarried. So at, at most, that is the lenience Jesus is giving in the divorce and remarriage discussion. And any other would be adultery. Jesus says it. We who are the children of the kingdom are to be marked by an honoring and upholding of marriage. Not a hard-heartedness that leads us to cast it away. And if we're listening and thinking, man, that's a tough teaching. So do the disciples. If you look at verse 10, they, again, it's clear they understood what He was saying because their response is, is, if that's the case, we'd be better off not to marry you which again is astounding if you think about it. These are the twelve disciples and they're standing around Jesus and He's just reminded them of what marriage is and shown them what marriage is not to be. And their their response is, well, we'd be better off not to marry her if we've got to stay with her. And yet, and that is their question and Jesus clarifies that Of they don't really understand what they're saying. And Jesus, uh, again... In this, revealing the hardness of the hearts of the Pharisees, the hardness of the hearts of of men in general, and men being um, a generic humanity there. And as we look at this section of the text, I I, I want to point out a couple of points of application just flowing from this. Um, One, as, as with any text we get to in Scripture that we see, um, anything taught to us, the, the first point of application is repent if repentance is necessary. Uh, there, there, there tends to, to be two um, ways in handling this idea of divorce. And one in our culture is to um, kind of go back with the Pharisees and say it's okay for anything. And the other stronger side of that that I would argue is equally wrong would be to say, if you have been, you're a pariah and, and treat it as almost as if it's the unpardonable that can't be redeemed and can't be reconciled. Um, I, I don't see that anywhere in Scripture. This is not an unpardonable sin. Christ's blood is sufficient to cover it and atone for it. Um, but if there has been, you have been the cause of, of one Um, Or we have gone against this teaching. The response is to repent. To go to Christ and seek reconciliation if at all possible. Secondly, um, we're to honor and fight for the marriages we find ourselves in. They're to be honored. They're to be held up. We're to fight for them, we're to honor them, we're to protect them, we're to guard ourselves against the hardness of our heart that would allow ourselves to be unforgiving or in our selfishness think that somehow we deserve or are entitled to something different or quote-unquote better is often what is taught in our culture that most times divorces and you have the conversations with people um, a divorce or even a remarriage after a divorce. What seems to be the resounding gong of it all? Well, I just need to be happy. God wants me to be happy. I wants you to be holy and God wants you to be obedient. He wants you to be happy in Him. But we're to honor and fight for our marriages and guard ourselves against this hardness of heart that would lead us to be unforgiving or a hardness of heart that would lead ourselves to think somehow we are entitled to something different than what God has given. And then we're to protect and uphold marriage as a whole. Not just in our own marriages, but in how we speak of it and how we relate to other people in their marriages and how we respond to what we see about marriage, to to see it and to speak of it as the goodness that it is. You watch shows, sitcom shows or movies, and it's been the growing trend for years, even Jess and I at times will go back and watch um, old shows from the 90s, and, and it's interesting to go back and watch those now that we see what's happening in the culture, and you see how the, the groundwork was laid through media back then. But oftentimes in those shows, and even in today's shows and movies, the man is the bumbling buffoon who the wife just has to bear with and tolerate, and she has to just pick up all his pieces and his bumblings and his idiocracies and badmouths him and belittles him. And the man sees the wife as the nagging woman and he's constantly joking around with her uh, to his buddies. And, and this thing is almost like as if they're these two people who really can't stand each other but they manage to somehow live together. We who are of the kingdom should not operate in marriage, speak of marriage, and allow others around us to speak of marriage in such a way. Marriage is a good gift from God. It is to be honored. It is to be delighted in. The husband or the wife that you've been given is a good gift from Him, regardless of how hard that may be at times. We're to honor it. We're to protect it. We're to uphold it. So Jesus shows um, of how the hardness of heart can be seen in divorce and remarriage. Pointing to the goodness and the original design of marriage. And then in verses 13 through 15, Jesus uh, has an interaction with children again, bookending it kind of with the beginning of chapter 18, where Jesus grabs the child and said, um, you have to become like one of these. And Pastor Jimmy, again, if you remember, pointed out, again, it's speaking more to becoming like a child more than the child itself. I would argue it's the same thing here in verse 13, 14, and 15. They go to bring the children to him, and the disciples go to rebuke him as if Jesus doesn't have time for these um, little ones. And Jesus says, let them come to me, for such as these belongs the kingdom. And there's this bookend in there. And in flowing out of this idea of, again, pointing back to this humility and becoming childlike, we flow into this interaction with what's commonly called the the rich young ruler. The heading in mind is the rich young man. And it ties into what we've seen in 18, and it ties into what we just saw in Jesus' teaching on marriage in the earlier part of chapter 19, because again, we're, we're going to see the hardness of heart manifested in a different way. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? So the guy comes to him and he asks a question that is common among those who want to be religious. What, what do I have to do to make sure I get in? Give me the list that I can check off, the good deeds I have to do, give it to me, I'll do it, and that way I know I'm good. What do I have to do to what good do I have to do to have eternal life? And Jesus' response to him is revealing already the issue with the young man. He has no idea what goodness is. And Jesus says, Why do you ask me what is good? There's only one who is good. Other places we see Jesus um, where the, the man calls Jesus good. He says, Why do you call me good? And and the one Jesus is pointing to here is God. And Jesus isn't trying to, to say that. Um, the goodness is not him or any of that. He, he's pointing to the reality. He's trying to reveal to the man, you have no concept of what you're asking. You're asking about goodness, and your standard and method of measuring goodness is completely skewed. For there is only one who is good, and that is Yahweh. But then Jesus, to, to reveal this to the man, um, it says, if you would have eternal life, keep the commandments. And to reveal even further that the man has no idea the depths of what he's asking. What's his response when Jesus says, Alright, you want to have eternal life? You want to know what good you have to do to have eternal life? Keep the commandments. What's the man's response? Which, which one? I mean, make sure I get the bare minimum going in here. And make sure I've kept it. Now, which ones are you talking about? Clearly showing he has no concept of the law, even in and of itself. In Deuteronomy 27, Curses everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. But the man asked Jesus, which, which ones? And Jesus goes along with the conversation. And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man comes back, I've kept those. I've done that. What else? Notice in this, the commands Jesus gives him and the commands Jesus doesn't give him. All of the commands Jesus gives this rich man is the second tablet. Meaning from that, they are the the commands that deal with our horizontal interaction. They're the commands that deal with our interacting with other people. Notice what he said: don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your father and mother, love your neighbors yourself. All of those commands are dealing with how he interacts with the people around him. None of those commands has anything to do with how he's relating to God. There's an intentionality with Jesus doing this. But are we not the same? We can often, in our attempt to justify ourselves, and when we seek to justify ourselves, or when you have conversations with someone about the gospel and the reality of judgment, they will often go into, I'm a good person. Well, how do you know you're a good person? And what do they often throw out? I don't steal. I never killed anybody. I don't cheat on my taxes much. I don't cheat on my wife. I'm a good daddy. I gave money to a homeless guy. Our justification of our self-righteousness is always typically horizontal. And Jesus is pointing out to this man, Okay, I'm going to give you the commands you think you've done. And again, the man revealing, he has no concept of these. Because if he had heard Jesus' sermon in Matthew 5 and paid attention, he'd realize he had broken all of these. But Jesus confronts him with these these commands. The man shows again he has no concept of goodness. He says, all these I've kept, what, what do I still lack? And then Jesus, without naming the first tablet commandments, hits him with the commandments from the first tablet. If you'll be perfect, go sell everything you have. and Give it to the poor. You have a treasure in heaven. Now come and follow me. And it says that the man walked away sad because he had many possessions. Jesus is confronting him, I would argue, with the first commandment. He's given him the second tablet. How to, 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 to relate to other people. The man, I would argue, wrongly argues he's done those. And now Jesus comes in, okay, now give up your God. And come and follow me. Have no other gods before me. Give up your possessions. Give up the God of yourself. Give up the gods of your comfort. Come and follow me. And even in thinking through this text, I realized by my response and the response we often get when we talk through this text to people, how much more like the rich young man I am than I care to admit because when we come to this text, or we hear this text taught, or we're speaking to someone else about this text, well, it's always the first question we get. Well, now, Jesus isn't commanding we have to give up everything here, is He? Jesus isn't teaching, i got to give up everything to go to heaven. Translation, I want to make sure I don't have to give up everything before I sign on to this thing. And while we would not admit it, and while I do not think that is what Jesus is teaching here, I think by the very fact that that is our first question reveals it may be something we need to evaluate. Because our first response is typically, I want to make sure he's not calling me to give this up. Which is the very problem the rich young man had. He refused to give up the God of himself to serve the true God of creation. And it says he walked away sad because he had many possessions. Or as D.A. Carson said, many possessions had him. I was listening to a podcast this week that had nothing to do with this text. but just listening to it because at work I'll put on podcasts and just let them roll. I think it was Douglas Wilson that I was listening to. And he made the statement, God doesn't mind his people having possessions. He minds possessions having them. And they had the rich young man. Far more than I care to admit, they have me. And if you're honest, at times they have you. And Jesus is confronting the man with the reality, okay, you want to you be perfect, you want to be complete? Forsake everything for me. Because Jesus even goes further. It's not just a matter of possessions. Jesus goes down with the disciples and He speaks of leaving houses and brothers and sisters and father and mother and children. That the call of the kingdom and a response to the gospel is um, the response that we saw in Matthew 13 when He finds the treasure in the field. What does He do? I'll give up everything for that because that is more valuable than anything I can give up. And he finds the pearl of great value. And what does he do? He sells everything that he has. Why? Because that pearl is more valuable than anything I could possibly lose. Likewise, we are called, as those of the kingdom, not to be hard-hearted in our self-righteousness, not to be hard-hearted in our seeking to acquire these things of this world or the comforts of this world, but we are to be those who look to the triune God and say, if it costs me everything else I have, And that Jesus is calling the young man to that very reality. Let go of everything and follow me. Even in that, I was confronted, and I think we all have to be. Is that really how we view the kingdom? Is that really how we hear the call of the gospel? To die to self and follow Christ? To forsake everything? We often get so tied up, and does that mean right now I have to go and sell everything? I'm asking you, are you even willing to? Am I willing to? If it comes down to, as a. a, even thinking back through, and I guess tying these two points of the sermon together, thinking back through a, a friend Jess had as a coworker when she worked at Campbell who became to be a believer while she was married and her husband said, you either get God or you get me, you can't have both. Are we willing to look at that and say, if it costs me you, I don't want to lose you, but if it costs me you then to get him, I'll take him. if it costs us our relationships, if it costs us our possessions to walk in obedience and faith. Jesus is calling us and calling the rich young man to leave everything. But there's something else to notice here with the rich young man. We have to ask the question, is, is, is God our, our God? Does He have our affections? Does He have our life? Is there an aspect of our life that we refuse to give up to follow Him? Is there a contingency of God, I will follow you as long as? Because see, here's the thing we see with the rich young man. You can desire eternal life and not want God. You can be religious and moral and not want God. And in both of these, you are outside of the kingdom. Are we here today, or are you here today, and like the rich young man, you are just merely seeking to, what, what things do I have to do to check off my boxes to get into the kingdom? And as you're like the, the, the rich young man, your, your view of goodness and eternal life and salvation in God so skewed that you think your goodness is going to get you there. And you want to make sure you've checked the boxes. And like him, you're asking, which one of these? Because I want to make sure I make sure I get the minimum to get in. You may be sitting here, you may sit here every week, you may read your Bible, you may listen to podcasts and read theology books. That's not what I'm asking you. Are you trusting like this man in your own righteousness? And like this man, are you unwilling and refusing to give up the God of you to follow the God of creation? Do the things of this world have us in a way that we will not forsake them to follow Him? Because here's, here's the other thing that is often lost even on me as, as I look at this text because we get so tied up in the other things. Jesus said, what, if you give it up, your treasure is going to be in heaven. Jesus goes to the disciples and said, there's nothing you're going to give up that's not going to be a better benefit for you in the kingdom of heaven. But yet we hold on to the trinkets of this world and to the God of ourself and our comfort. And in the hardness of the young man's heart, he refused to forsake his life and follow Christ. Here's the hard reality of this. I've asked the question, do you? But yet, if I know the answer. We don't. Even those of us who are in Christ and have been regenerated, do we not still find ourselves fighting against the flesh to cling to the things of this world? To seek and, and desire things of this world at times even to the forsaking of the God who has saved us. We don't even keep the ones the rich young man said and thought he did. Because here's the reality. Jesus in this is called the young man. Love, love your neighbors yourself and love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's ultimately what he's pointing him here to. You can't, I can't, we can't do that. We need someone who is perfectly righteous. Who has truly loved his neighbor as himself, and has truly loved God above all things, and forsook everything else, even his own life, to be obedient to the call of God. And we need one who has done that for us, and that one is Christ Jesus, who has perfectly loved his neighbor, who has perfectly obeyed the commands, and has perfectly forsook everything, even his own life, to become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That in him we are righteous. So if you're here today and you're asking what what good deed do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Forsake your good deeds in the sense that you think they're going to earn you righteousness. And look to Christ and be saved. Look to Christ. Forsake the world. See Him as better. We sang it a couple weeks ago. I, I wasn't here. I was preaching in another church, but I know we sang it. Take the world, but give me Jesus. Is that the cry of our heart? Today we have been challenged. Flowing out of 18, we were challenged with the hardness of our heart and and the lack of our humility in our forgiving. Today we've been pressed into it with our self-indulgence and our self-righteousness and our refusing to forsake all to follow Christ and in our marriages and in our divorce. This isn't the context of this verse. The context of the verse is looking to Christ, but I will point to it here in the midst of this. We've looked at the idea of the hardening of the heart and the hardness of heart. So today I'll say, today if you hear His voice, don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart to the things of Christ. Don't harden your heart to the conviction the Spirit may bring upon you. Don't harden your heart toward those who are around you. Go back even to verse 18, who you may need to reconcile with and you may need to forgive. Don't harden your heart to your husband or your wife that would cause you to forsake them. And don't harden your heart to the God who is better than anything in this world you would give up to follow. But rather, may we pray the Spirit would soften our hearts that we would walk in obedience. That as we come to the table in a moment, we're reminded of the bridegroom who loves his bride unconditionally and is faithful to her. And never leaves her, nor forsakes her, in spite of her. And we're reminded of the one who forsook all for the joy that was set before him. Would you pray with me, Father in heaven? We we pray that your spirit would give us um, life in your word. Father, that we would trust you in your word, walk in obedience to your word, and be drawn to you through Christ Jesus for our great need of forgiveness and reconciliation. Father, we thank you for the truth that your spirit indwells those who are yours and gives us understanding. Father, we acknowledge our dependence upon that. It's in Christ we pray these things. Amen.